Y'all must really like that one. Choir sounded like there were about a hundred of y'all. Whew. Praise God. The, uh, <laughs> that's, that's a good one. And uh, <laughs> that one cues up something for me, too, though it's not the, the sweet, tender moments of worshiping God holding my infant daughter. Uh, Beulah Land is the name of a barbecue joint near where I grew up, and uh, I would gladly tarry in Beulah Land. Uh, whew, I'm going to have to call Beulah Land Barbecue up and see if they will send food all the way to Atlanta. Uh, good morning, friends. It is great to be with y'all again if we haven't met. My name is Jeremy, and it, is, it really is a joy to come visit y'all in Plains again. Uh, this morning, we'll be starting in Genesis chapter 32. I'm starting at verse 22, and I'm going to read and sort of give some commentary as we go. So, starting at verse 22. That same night, he, that's Jacob, you might have heard of him, took his two wives, his two maids, his 11 children, that's biblical marriage, right, and crossed the ford of the river. Jacob is currently on the run from his father-in-law, and he's now passing through territory that belongs to his hostile brother Esau. So we're kind of at an anxious moment here in the text. This story is getting tense for our hero Jacob. He's uh, sent word ahead to his brother that he's passing through and has asked for safe passage. And a message has come back. Esau is coming to greet him, and he might be bringing an army. So Jacob is worried. There's potentially an attack coming. So he has sent all of his stuff across the stream, across the Jabbok River. It says, so he sent them across the stream, and likewise everything he had, and Jacob was left alone. And then the attack comes, but not from the expected source. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. The, the text here, the Bible is not clear who this man necessarily is at this point in the story. Maybe some sort of angel or a man or a representative of God, God himself, God's spirit, something else. We're not entirely sure what's happening, but we come to understand that this attacker is some sort of divine representative. And the man wrestles with him until daybreak. The fight lasts all night. When the man saw that he could not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint. He's wounded in this long fight, a wound that he'll carry for the rest of his life. And then he, the, the attacker, said, let me go, they're grappling, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said to him, I will not let you go unless you bless me, because that's what you say to someone in a fight. And so the divine representative says to him, what is your name? I want to pause there for a bit. Before we go any further, I've got to admit, right, this is a really simple question right? What is your name? It should be an easy one to get right. This is Jacob, son of Isaac, grandson of Abraham. He's kind of a big deal. And 
He's not new for us either if we're reading along in the Bible. We, we know his name. We've been with him for something like seven chapters by this event, this fight by the river. But we need to understand that in the world of the Old Testament, your name is not just a name. It's not just a label or something that goes on your driver's license or what you're called. It's, it's deeper. It's richer than that. Your name, it's connected to your identity, to your story, who you are. It's all wrapped up in this. So to ask someone what is your name is actually a really, really a deep question. It's to ask someone who are you? What are you about? What kind of person are you? What's your identity? So this is a dense, loaded question posed to Jacob. And also, we need to understand that there's some context to Jacob's name. I want to jump back in the story, back to Genesis 25, the birth narrative of Jacob and his brother Esau. I'm going to start at verse 24. When the time came for her, that's Rebecca, to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first came out, and he was red, and his whole body was hairy like a garment. So they named him Esau, meaning hairy. That's awful. And after this, the other brother came out, his hand grasping at Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob, meaning to grab at the heel. We need to take a moment and just agree. These parents are really bad at naming their kids. I mean, I, I've got two kids, and uh, my parents and in-laws, they, they weren't happy with all of the names that we had proposed for the kids. And they were very vocal about it sometimes. Uh, like I had these ideas of naming the kids after big theological concepts or important figures from church history or my favorite European philosophers. Those aren't great names. They're cool, but they're not great names. And even I know that Rebecca has picked really bad names when she names her kids Harry Dude and the Heel Grasper. Like, come on, just buy a baby name book. They're at Barnes & Noble, it's easy. So Esau, his name is generally understood to mean something like red hairy guy. And Jacob's name, when you use it as a name, well, it's weird, because it's a verb, right? The Bible tells us that it means something like to grab at the heel. But when you turn it into an adjective, when you use it differently in a sentence, it can mean the overreacher or insidious, or deceitful. Still really bad names, parents. So this guy is not walking around with a name that works like our English name, Jacob. His name tag when he goes to the church potluck is insidious. I don't want to try his casserole. It's not, it's not a good name, folks. Can you imagine trying to get a job when the application you write uh, my name is Deceitful. It's not going to go well. So there's a lot going on in this name. And honestly, Jacob has lived up to it. He's really, he's lived up to his name. He's spent his life lying and cheating and stealing. He has hurt his family and many around him. And now he's on the run from his father-in-law and his brother wants to kill him. And that's what's driving all the tension in this passage. 
And the last time that Jacob saw his brother Esau, the one that's now coming to greet him and might have an army, he had just stolen the fraternal blessing, which is a huge deal that belonged to Esau. There's this scene, this terrible scene in the Bible where Jacob decides to deceive his blind, dying father on his deathbed. He sneaks into the room where his blind father lies dying and snatches this gift intended for Esau. And Isaac, his father, feeling that something's not quite right, he asks the man who has entered his room, who's supposed to be Esau, he asks, who are you? And Jacob responds, I am your son, Esau. The last time Jacob was asked this question, what is your name? Who are you? He got it wrong. He answered with Esau. Jacob has been trying to be someone else. Jacob has been trying to be Esau for a very long time. Two of the most memorable events in Jacob's life are when he stole significant parts of Esau's identity. He stole his status in the family and the community as the firstborn, which apparently you can do. And later he steals that fraternal blessing that was supposed to guide the destiny of Esau. And he's, in this strange way, he's taken that gift from God and from Isaac and put it on himself, something that was never meant for him, and it's fractured his family. He's been trying to be Esau for a long time. So here, caught in the grip of the divine by the river, as the day breaks, Jacob is asked this question for a second time. What is your name? Who are you? How much of our struggle, our strife, our frustration, our pain has come from us not knowing how to answer that question? Who are you? How much energy have we wasted? How much time have we wasted not knowing how to answer that simple question? And it's not just an Old Testament problem. In the New Testament, Jesus tells a story about a man who had two sons. And one day, one of the sons approaches his father and says, Dad, I I want my share of the inheritance now. This is the prodigal son. You know this story. It's a strange and shocking moment where the son does this egregious act of dishonoring his father. The the request is almost to say, Dad, I would prefer to live in a world where you were dead and gone. Give me what's coming to me so that I can go live that out now. I'm sick of waiting for you to die. And I'll leave. I'll go. I'll, I'll go live somewhere else. and You won't have to see it. You won't have to worry about it. But I'm sick of this. I'm sick of this family. I'm sick of you. Give me my money so I can leave. And shockingly to the audience, the father does this. He monetizes half of his estate, and his son runs away and goes to another country and blows it quickly on what the Bible calls wild living. And he finds himself lonely, pathetic, in a miserable place. And he starts to remember what it was like to be a member of his family. He remembers what it was like on his dad's estate. So he makes a plan to go home. But he knows, he knows he can't be a son anymore. He understands that he's blown it. 
He's the disappointment. He's a failure. He's messed it all up. There's really nothing left for him. There's no place for him in the family after what he's done. So he has an idea. I'll go home, and I'll offer myself back to the family as a slave. Even my dad's slaves live better than this. And he makes this long trek home. And the whole way he's working on the speech, it's something like, uh, uh, we find it in Luke 15, 18, Father, I have sinned against God, and I have sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Take me as one of your slaves. And you can imagine this long walk home, and he's refining the speech. Father, I'm, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against God. Which one feels better? I've sinned against you. I've sinned against the family. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Just let me be here as a slave. So he gets home, and there's this incredible scene where the dad comes running, which you don't do. This is an act of like, publicly humiliating himself. But dad runs to meet him and throws his arms around him. You can imagine that the love almost burns the prodigal. You can imagine him squirming out of that hug to start his speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven, and I have sinned against you. I am no longer worthy. But the dad doesn't let him finish. He pulls his son back into the hug, puts new clothes on his back, new shoes on his feet, tells his staff to prepare a party, and the most important one, he puts the family signet ring back on the son's finger. He gives him back his name. He offers him a chance to be a son again. And so all of a sudden, there are two narratives at play for the prodigal, the son who has left and come back. He knows his identity. His name that he's given himself, it's slave. He's given himself a new role in the story, a new way to relate to the world as slave, as loser, as the one who screwed it all up, as the not good enough. But there's another story, a different story, being told by the father. The father believes deeply that this man is still his son, and he offers him that name back. You are my child. You are my son. But don't forget, there are two brothers in this story. There's two sons in the parable, right? The other son, the older one, the good one, the achieving one, the good grades one, the never gets in trouble one, the one who represents the family in public, the one who feels all the family pressure, this brother finds out that his loser little brother is home and that dad is responding not with punishment but with a party. And he is mad. He refuses to go into the party and pridefully forces his father to come outside and talk to him. And the, the older son, he has a speech ready too, just like the prodigal. Uh, starting at verse 29 in Luke 15, he says, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he can't even say his name, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fad calf for him? And so all of a sudden, there are two narratives at play for the older brother, the son who stayed. He knows his identity. His name is slave. He's given himself this new role in the story, how he relates to the world. Slave. 
He's the worker, the one who's always been working to be good enough, the one who's always had it right, the one who has worked to earn his place in the family. But there's a different story being told by the father. The father believes deeply that this man is his son, and he offers his name back. You are my child. You are called son. And the story just kind of ends. There's a question that sort of hangs in the air at the end of this parable for the two brothers and for us. Whose version of the story are they going to believe? Whose version of their identities will they choose to live in? Theirs? I am a slave. Call me slave. I have slaved all these years for you. I'm no longer worthy to be son. I am slave. Or are they going to believe the story the father is telling about them? You are my child. How much of our struggle, our strife, our frustration, our pain has come from not knowing or not being willing or able to trust and accept the identity that God is speaking over us? Because we've got our own narratives, right? We, like the prodigal, are walking around with all this, this baggage, this mess. We've got a history. We, in church world, a lot of times we'll call this sin. And we've, we've got all of this sin on us, and we feel that there's just something completely broken. Something about us is wrong. But there's another story being told by our Heavenly Father, who says, you can come home and be son again. You can be my child. How much of our struggle has come from us not being willing to accept that what God is saying about us could be true? We, like the older brother, have been working, slaving, trying to be good enough, trying to not be the disappointment, trying to earn love. When the father is saying, you are my child, I have always loved you. We, like the younger brother, have been hiding in shame, living in anxiety and fear because we know that we're unworthy. We know that we're not good enough. We know that we're too broken to be loved. When the story the father is telling about him is, welcome home, you're my son. And so let's go back to the river with these two men wrestling, fighting all night, wounded, muddy, as the sun starts to rise and the dawn breaks in the grasp of the divine, the heel grabber who is now in someone else's grasp, the divine representative says to him, what is your name? And Jacob responds. Genesis 32, 27, an incredible moment. Jacob, not Esau, Jacob. What is your name? Not strong, not good enough, not the big hairy one, not the firstborn, not the important one. But Jacob, deceiver, insidious, overreacher. Perhaps for the first time in Jacob's life, he has had the courage to be honest about who he is. God asks, who are you? Jacob answers, I am deceitful. I am insidious. I am the overreacher. I am the one who lies 
and cheats and steals. He bears his name, and in doing so, he bears it all. Jacob has finally stopped trying to be someone else and has decided that he can simply answer the question, who are you? What is your name with Jacob? There's this moment here of perfect, naked, simple honesty before God, and then something extraordinary happens. Jacob finally gets it right. Jacob finally answers the question, who are you with, I'm Jacob. No, wrong, says God. Not anymore. Wrong answer. Verse 28. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have wrestled with God and with humans and have prevailed. No longer shall you be called deceiver. No longer shall you be called insidious. You're not the overreacher. Your new name is the overcomer. Jacob has received a new name, Israel. And Jacob will receive a promise from God too. Israel will bless all of humanity as was promised to Isaac and as was promised to Abraham. Israel will be the overcomer. This moment of honesty and confession yields calling and new identity and purpose. Jacob is not a slave to his past anymore. Same as us. We can't do away with our past. That's our story. You don't have to like it, but you have to be willing to claim it. And when you do, you don't have to be a slave to it anymore. God is in the identity-changing business. This is something God likes to do. Uh, we see it all the time. This is a God who likes change, forward motion, momentum, growth, newness. And we see it in Scripture with name changes. Things like this happen all the time in the Bible. Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. Simon becomes Peter. Saul becomes Paul. It goes on and on. Uh, and today, Jacob becomes Israel. Each of these name changes brings about new identity, new purpose, new calling, new meaning. And they come with transformation, with metamorphosis and new life. I think we're in the same place as Jacob. I think we're in the same place as the prodigal and in the same place as the older son, too. We have baggage, history, backstory, things that we'd like to hide. We're trying to hide things that we don't want each other to be aware of, that we don't want God to be aware of. That doesn't work. Things we want to block out, blot out, forget. Parts of our story and parts of ourselves that we don't want to claim. But it never really works because we can't hide from ourselves and we certainly can't hide from God. So we've created new identities. We have this understanding of ourselves as broken, accident, mistake, liar, whatever. Uh, maybe if you grew up in church world, the, the name that rattles around in your head is something like sinner. We carry these names around. Disappointment, addict, loser, outcast, unwanted. If you can't come up with a name for yourself, if there's not one of those rattling around in your head, something that's nagging at you, Paul has a suggestion. In Romans chapter 5, Paul writes that all of us are enemies of God. It reads, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. Paul again in Colossians chapter 2 said that we were dead because of our sin, 
but God has made a way through Christ for us to be alive again. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, To all who did receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a person's will, but born of God, so that everyone who was chosen, <clears throat> that way everyone who has given themselves to Christ receives the right to be called children of God. Just like the prodigal and the older brother, the status being offered to us is that of beloved child. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, anyone who has become a child of God, anyone who belongs to Christ, is a new creation. There's a new identity just waiting to be picked up. When we surrender to God, when we say yes to Jesus, these labels that we've put on ourselves or that others have put on us, I don't know where yours came from. It may have been birthed out of pride. I've carried some of those. It may have been birthed out of pain. I've had those as well. It may have been given to you by someone else. Maybe you got a terrible name from your mom like Insidious. Maybe someone else put it on you like a slur or a nickname meant to hurt, a single act attributed to your whole identity. But when we join Jacob and the prodigal in the process of surrendering this past identity, this narrative that we tell about ourselves, in exchange for the narrative that God is telling about us, there's newness. There's something spectacular that happens. New life is opened up. When we accept God's new story, we take on a new identity as a child of God, as a member of the great family of the church. And it comes with calling and purpose and identity. And so I don't know what name you're bearing what story you're carrying around that's holding you down or back or away from God or away from yourself or your community. I don't know what identity you've put on yourself or what others have done to you, but God has a different name, a different story, one that's been in the works for a while, one that God's been working on for a long time. As we prepare for a time of response, my mind goes to the, the first line of the first psalm. We're in one of my favorite versions. It says, how well God must like you. There's a truth in that for you today. As, as I stop talking and we move into a time of response, during this uh, next piece of worship, you have a chance to, to respond to to talk to Jesus, to, to leave the identity, leave the names, leave the baggage that you've brought in with you, leave them with Jesus. And in exchange, accept the new story, the new identity, the new purpose, the new vocation, the new calling, the new things that God is doing and that God is calling us into. That's there for you. And whatever Jesus has, to trade for all of the, all the baggage, all the junk we bring, I promise you, it's more true, more real, and more beautiful than any other possible reality that you can imagine. Ephesians 3 promises us that the, the God of the Bible, that this Jesus 
gives us more than we could ask for and more than we could imagine. And this new life, this kingdom life, this full life, it's waiting for us with Jesus. Not out there somewhere in the future in an afterlife in a perfect whatever, but it's here. Jesus offers us new life and new identity as child of God now. All you have to do is be willing to believe the story that Jesus is telling about you and accept your status as loved, as saved, as cherished, as valued, as worthy, as child of God. Amen.